You are listening to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote, with Rabbi Jesse Olitsky and friends, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about this and other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. And don't forget to vote. Welcome to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote. I'm your host, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky of Congregation Bethel in South Orange, New Jersey. We know that the Jewish voter is not monolithic, and there are many issues at stake in November's November's election. Each issue is very much intertwined with ethics, values, and teachings of Jewish tradition. Today, I'm privileged to invite Kendall Pinckney to have a conversation with me about the state of racial injustice in this country and what role the Jewish community plays in that fight. Kendall is a fourth-year rabbinical student at the Jewish Theological Seminary and co-founder of Kaleidoscope. Welcome, Kendall. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm wondering if you'll start by telling us a little bit about Kaleidoscope, the organization that you helped to found, and us also what led you on your journey to rabbinical school. Sure thing. So Kaleidoscope is a narrative arts showcase that features the story, uh, stories of Jews of color and Jews from Sephardic and Mizrahi backgrounds. So in founding this, I, I actually was kind of an accidental co-founder. Um, the project was initially conceived of by the spoken word artist, Vanessa Hittery, who has been a spoken word artist for um, quite a while and has won accolades um, the world around. And she was looking for an administrator to help with this project. I responded to it on social media back when I was on social media. And quickly through our conversations, she realized, okay, I might have one perspective as a Syrian Sephardic uh, woman, um, but you bring this perspective as a Jew of color who has uh, quite a bit of Jewish education, and you are also a a playwright. So you have a certain dramaturgical eye. We should totally partner in this together. And so it was through her recognizing that I had something that I could bring to the table that we really partnered in the building of this project. And we did several live performances in New York over the years, traveled around the New York, New Jersey area, and have started some educational projects since then. Um, And it's been a really fantastic experience thus far. A little bit about heading to rabbinical school, I would actually say that the work with Kaleidoscope and with another arts organization called uh, LABA, which is a Jewish arts and culture organization where Jewish culture makers come together and study Jewish texts around a theme and create works of art based on that theme. It was through being involved in both of those that I realized, wow, this melding of my personal story and Jewish text and the performing arts feels like the sweet spot for me. Um, Whereas congregational work was never quite the pull for me, anything that would give me deeper access to the texts and to Jewish knowledge to then be able to use it in a creative format seemed worthwhile. And that's why I chose to go to JTS. And so far it's been a wonderful three heading into four years. 
we are at this moment over the summer that we experienced uh, with protests and marches throughout the country in response to the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, just two examples of the so many uh, black men and women who die at the hands of police in this country. But this moment seemed to ignite something within so many in this country, forcing our country to really do a deep soul searching. Uh, this time when we're preparing for the high holidays, during the month of Elul, when we're supposed to do a cheshbon hanefesh, an accounting of the soul, it's almost as if this country is beginning finally to do a real accounting of the soul of our nation. From a Jewish perspective, what does this moment mean? Mm, wow. I mean, this moment means so much from a Jewish perspective. So as you said, we're entering, we've entered, we are now in uh, this month of Elul. And so it's a time of reflection. And for Jewish folks, by and large, that reflection also, I think, needs to be in part on how it is that Jews are part and parcel of the quote-unquote American project, which means that some of the greatest victories of this nation, Jews are part of that, and also some of the real uh, moral failures um, of this nation, Jews are also part of that. Now, it's not for Jews alone to have to contend with that. Rather, our whole nation really needs to. But I think that one of the beautiful things um, as far as Jewish values are concerned, especially around this moment, is that we kind of have, an, we have ancient technology that is specifically designed to give us the space to really consider um, how it is that we have been in this past year or over many years and to think about how we might do things differently um, and to really commit to a deep looking, not just some kind of cursory exercise, but rather how have I actually been complicit or in what ways am I directly or indirectly responsible um, for kind of these systems that have made it to where not everyone is able to live out the fullness of um, what at least certain uh, American documents and ideas would seem to profess. So I, I think that Jewish values and the Jewish tradition in this moment actually gives us a lot to work with, so long as we are really open to engaging with it in that robust and um, thoughtful way. You've said before that you don't like to use the phrases, the Jewish community or the black community to see them as monolith. Um, can you expand a bit more on that concept? Sure. So whenever I hear some term like the Jewish community or the black community, uh, or like the Jewish community and the black community don't get along, it's like, who, who are people talking about when they say that? It's like, are, are there two people who are emblematic of both communities that are like sitting at a table screaming at each other? I just don't. So on the, the simple term just does not quite make sense to me. But even speaking like more specifically about that, we just have so many different communities that are part of 
Jewish communities and black communities. And what's more is that there is actually overlap. So for me as a Jew of color who converted to Judaism, I have been in between many communities for um, the last decade plus. And I see the ways in which there is overlap that is often overlooked. So, and what's more is that that overlap is overlooked by Jewish communities and black communities. So those of us who are in the margins are often our experiences are erased. And that is something that gets lost when we hold on to these terms of the Jewish community and the black community. So I often like to encourage people to use the plural of those in order to just leave space in their thinking for those communities that are in between, but also to allow for the experience of other Jewish or black communities that might think differently than they do or approach a problem differently than they do. I mean, let's be real, Jewish communities in the plains or in the south um, in small communities will approach things very differently in many ways than Jewish communities in New York City or Chicago. And the same thing with black communities like where I'm from in Mesquite, Texas, or where my grandfather used to be in Slidell, Louisiana, um, will be very different from black communities in LA or in Philadelphia for that matter. So it's just a way to hopefully open our minds to uh, these greater possibilities and also humble ourselves a little bit in terms of how we approach talking to each other about each other and about ourselves. One of the key concepts in Judaism is tikkun olam, to repair the world, to repair that which is broken, and our obligation as God's partners to repair that which is broken. In fact, uh, part of our liturgy on the High Holidays as part of the Unatana Tokef prayer suggests that tefillah uteshuva uh, utzedaka, that with these three avenues, these three pillars of prayer and repentance and justice work, we can change that which is broken. We can change the brokenness, the evilness of the decree. That being said, repairing the world suggests that there is something that is broken. And we can easily say now, as almost like a Monday morning quarterback perspective, that there is something deeply broken in society, that the systemic racism, the police brutality that exists in this country. And yet, when we look back on the foundation that our country was built on, it doesn't seem to be broken in the sense that this is exactly what the founding fathers had in mind when they developed that country. So how do we fix something that is so broken and so unjust in our minds but something that is in some ways working exactly as it was intended to because this country that we could quote any founding document we want uh, to suggest that it's about we the people, it's for the people, it's out of many, one, whatever we want to say, is really a country that was founded on the backs of people of color and indigenous people. Uh, it was a country that was founded on, so that white land-owning men had rights that other people did not. Mm. I mean, that's a really big question that acknowledges just the 
the bigness of this history and also the, the heft of this history and the heaviness of it. Um, I mean, it really is a question of reform or a question of revolution and uh, reconstruction or maybe dismantling in order to reconstruct. And it's hard to know exactly what is the right kind of tikkun. I mean, to some extent, like repair does suggest that something can be fixed, even if it's broken. Um, I know that one of the quotes that's often brought up around these matters is Audre Lord, the um, scholar, poet, um, and Black womanist thinker, um, posited at a uh, feminism conference, um, I think it was back in the 80s, I believe, um, that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So can this really be can this really be redone using the same tools? And truth be told, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. But one of the things that I often look to um, in my thinking about it is Jewish tradition. For example, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's in Gitin, um, where there's um, a discussion about a uh, beam that is stolen in order to make a um, building of some sort. And there's a discussion or an argument between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai about what to do. And Beit Shammai is like, tear down the structure and then give the beam back. And Beit Hillel is like, no, actually, you don't tear down the structure, but rather you um, pay the person from whom it was stolen the value of the beam. Um, and then there's some commentary on that to say, because this payment actually allows the one who did the wrong to engage in shuva to repent. Um, so, I mean, I've definitely been toggling between these ideas in recent weeks and months, like w which one makes the most sense, especially because, you know, we're not talking about a beam. We're actually talking about human beings who were treated as beams, who their lives were stolen, their livelihoods were stolen. Um, so it's not, it, it doesn't, the, the rabbinic perspective doesn't map perfectly onto that. Um, and yet, maybe in some small way, the rabbinic perspective can allow us to at least establish some kind of like, some borders in which we can think and wrestle with these really complex situations. And I, my hope is that there is some kind of tikkun that can take place. But for any tikkun whatsoever to actually manifest itself in a more just system, the depth of wrestling that needs to take place in order to lead to that, it, it, it's deep. It's really deep. And so that's part of why I think when I said earlier that this is a moment in Elul of like real introspection. This should not be an easy thing. This should not be a fly by night kind of thing. This is a real moment to look at ourselves, look at our choices, look at our inheritance and say, okay, do I stand by this moving forward? 
or can I even make some small choice that actually pushes me toward that um, tikkun and really commit myself day by day, week by week, year by year to greater tikkun? And what you said is the need for, for tshuva. The Talmud references uh, an example and the Rambam really expands on it. The idea that true tshuva is when you're faced with the same situation a second time and you do things differently. Mm. Uh, tshuva requires us to make that conscious effort to change our ways, not just to say we're sorry for the past, but it allows us to shape a very different future. I think you're right that there's so many in this country that are doing tshuva right now. Uh, to my surprise, uh, those in elected positions, uh, those who are in law enforcement, uh, mm -hmm. and there are so many who refuse to because right. of the partisan nature of something that should be about human dignity. Absolutely. But Absolutely. I, I, I really do agree with that there. And, and it's really sad because you would hope that it wouldn't be about a partisan reality, but that it would be about human dignity. And yet, so much of the political system has been set up in such a way that people do kind of follow their, uh, people do follow their worst angels in <laughs> certain respects. But then there's also another thing that I think is somewhat overlooked. And I think that this actually speaks to those who are making changes. And what I think is another area of um, introspection that for those people who are making changes, there's something to be mindful of. I would encourage that those who are trying to change, not to simply to just change in action, but rather to really think about why the changes, why they are trying to make the change, and also about to pay attention to what is happening in their making the change. Like, are they feeling uncomfortable? Are they feeling that something isn't sitting right? And to really be mindful of what's happening viscerally in them. And the reason that I say that is because I've been in a number of situations recently in conversations with, um, particularly with white Jews, where I'm seeing a great discomfort to address these issues, and it expresses itself in one of, at least one of two ways. Either this is not really an issue for our communities, so why are you bringing this up? And then others who are having such a reactionary response of saying like, oh my goodness, I need to shape up. And then they start immediately just using a new script. And so what do I mean by that? They suddenly start using words like anti-racism and intersectionality, ashkenormativity, but just based upon some deeper conversations, it honestly feels a little performative. And so beyond just saying the right words, there needs to be a real engagement with what are the values that are beneath that. And the way that that happens is by being in community, being in conversation and relationship, and getting over that fear of saying the wrong thing or making a mistake, but rather saying, hey, I actually don't understand this word, ashkenormativity. What is implied by it? Okay, when you say anti-racism and I say I'm not a racist, how is it that my saying I'm not a racist is 
apparently not anti-racism. Like we need to actually have the space to really have these conversations in order for there to be a deep and substantial change in our hearts and our minds. And I, I would like to encourage all of our communities to be open to having those difficult conversations and in as much as is possible to hold folks who are trying with compassion um, and in as much as is possible giving folks the benefit of the doubt because you know the hope is you know people are trying that is a really good thing that's a really good development there was an open letter uh, that was written a number of months ago and signed by Jews of color to the larger Jewish community and the letter was published in e-Jewish philanthropy among other places entitled not free to desist quoting Mishnah Avot, right, that we are not free to complete the task, but right, that we aren't free to desist from it either. And among those asks or expectations that these signers make to the, in this letter to the Jewish community, it begins with an explicit endorsement that Black Lives Matter and to say the words Black Lives Matter. We, that was a priority for us at my synagogue. We have those words and a sign right out front of our building. Although in some ways it, sound, it feels at times like a sort of hashtag activism mm -hmm. that we, we've done our job and we check this off because we say what we're asked to, to say. But even these simple words have created a wrestling among the Jewish community out of concern that in the past, a movement for black lives, which I understand is different from saying black lives matter has made statements that are critical of Israel or some would see as anti-Israel, even anti-Semitic. Uh, and some are saying, well, I support racial justice, but I can't say black lives matter. And again, does that focus, is that the Ashkenormativity of the Jewish community that allows those in positions of power to make such a conclusion without doing the simple act that this letter is asking and beginning by recognizing that the life of a black man, woman, and child is of equal value made in God's image to anybody else and everybody else. Mm. I mean, I think you really, you really touch on it. I mean, you really hit the nail on the head with that last statement. It's, that's really the essence of, saying Black Lives Matter. And now I've said earlier that I don't believe in this term of like black community, be black community, be Jewish community, but I think it might be useful to give some insight into conversations that um, happen in black communities as well. Um, so, I mean, I can only speak for certain communities, um, but first things first, I, I understand the caution that people have around saying Black Lives Matter, especially because as at one point a platform was developing, one of the pieces that was added to it after multiple stages um, was, um, yeah, was language that um, was really, that did seem to be uh, anti-Semitic, or seemed to be anti-Israel. Um, so I, I get the concern. I definitely get the concern. The one thing that I would point to, however, is that 
for most black folks who are saying black lives matter, they are not thinking about a platform. They are not thinking about the broader ideology um, that certain activists, um, professional activists as well are saying. Rather, it's, it's really as simple as like, our lives matter. Almost, I mean, not to make too much of an equivalence, but like, in as much as a Jewish person might say never again, like, and that expresses something very specific for a Jewish person, but to then go on and say like, okay, so if in a Jewish organization had never again as their slogan or their motto, and then were to detail, um, make a certain platform that could be viewed as racist by other groups, should we then impute that to all Jewish folks? I, I don't think so. Um, I think that most black folks are like, listen, my life matters, the life of my children matters. And we would hope that um, anyone who encounters this would be able to say that their lives matter. And now just to say a, a word about, you know, something that's been a little more frustrating in recent times is certain Jewish pundits or communities will link onto or grab onto like, oh, well, what about uh, anti-Semitism in the Black community, Farrakhan, and things like that? Um, first things first. And this I feel fairly comfortable saying from most Black communities, like, most Black communities do not follow Farrakhan. Many Black communities do not even know who Farrakhan is. And for those who do, folks view him as, like, quite extreme. And um, he is homophobic and anti-Semitic. Like, people are not following Farrakhan. So I think that folks who are worried about that can actually calm down about that. That is, most black communities are not listening to that. Um, while at the same time, some of the concerns that are coming up for people who um, might point to Farrakhan or something like that, like, like real concerns of like poverty amongst black folks and about the policing of black bodies and things like that, those those are real concerns, but to marry like a very serious concern with only one particular fringe, you know, black leader, um, I, that, that that doesn't really make any sense to me. Um, so, but I, I, it really is about dignity and about just you know individual dignity, dignity of our families. Um, so I would. I would encourage people to largely see it that way because I know that that's how a lot of black folks are seeing it. One last thing I would add in order to kind of like nuance this just a touch more is there are a variety of ways that black communities are responding to this moment. So I, I just wanna give an example from the church that I grew up in, um, which is um, a church in um, South Dallas, Texas. Um, the senior pastor of that church um, can say Black Lives Matter from the pulpit, can say the other slogan, I can't breathe from the pulpit, while also saying that, you know, the white evangelical community needs to actually take a moral stand and not abandon Black Christians at this moment, while also saying um, we actually need reform and we need to actually partner with police in order to bring about this reform. So, I mean, think about that. 
on the one hand saying Black Lives Matter and being able to have a conversation around, um, even they would even have a conversation around what does defund exactly mean, but then they led a prayer vigil with a lot of Black church leaders at the Dallas Police Department and at Dallas City Hall with police. So there's actually quite a bit of nuance and it's not like, oh, we don't care about police, police are not, um, police are only part of the problem, they can't be part of the solution. No, black communities are responding in a bunch of different ways and it would be wise of us to really, um, to leave space to consider that black communities are not monolithic in this response. So if you had your way, how would you suggest the Jewish community that is also not monolithic respond in this moment? Um, great question. I mean, I think it starts with, I was going to say it starts with curiosity and self-education, but actually I think it starts with something before that. You have to acknowledge like, what is coming up for you when you're thinking about these things? So my um, wife is a therapist who is specializing in body-based therapies. And one of the things that I'm learning from her is like actually looking and paying attention to your body as you're thinking about something, it can actually give you hints about what's happening. So when I mention the word race um, or Ashka normativity, I would encourage Jewish communities, like, first of all, notice what's happening in your body. Are you suddenly feeling like your shoulders are riding up? Is your brow furrowing? Are you feeling angry? Are you feeling rage? At first, just start by noticing that. And I would even say, use kind of the, um, the very woo-woo term, honor that. Like, because if you can't at least acknowledge and honor how you're feeling, there's no way that you're going to be able to move towards this greater progress. So start by noticing and acknowledging and giving space for how you're feeling. And then once you are able to, once that calms down a bit, you can move to the next step of, okay, having some curiosity about why is it that I experienced this? Is it because I feel that maybe it's an existential threat to my Jewish identity? Is it um, something else? And then once you pass that point of curiosity, then I think you can finally make it to the point of curiosity in terms of self-education. Like, okay, what about the black communities in my particular region of the world? What about um, various elements of like black history and Jewish history in my particular region? What about other communities of color and how my Jewish community engages with them? What are my thoughts about um, people of color and might there be any particular like lingering racism in my experience? And is that based upon a negative early experience I had or is it something that has seeped in kind of um, from just the broader culture? So I, I think that self-understanding and self-empathy is kind of the first step before broader education. And then the hope is that after that education that there will actually be folks who will seek out to develop relationships with communities that are different from them. I think that relationship is really the basis of so much healing in the world and so much of that tikkun that we're seeking. Um, the lion's share of that happens through relationship. So that those are kind of, that that's the process that makes sense to me, at least in this moment.
this time of year, during the Yamim Naraim, the Days of Awe, I, I always find it fascinating how it leads into November's election. Uh, and every four mm-hmm. years, it seems that the themes at play during the high holidays are themes that linger and stay with me as I'm preparing to vote. And so mm-hmm. what are those themes? To me, they're themes of renewal. They're themes of uh, pouring out our hearts, acknowledging how we are at fault for much of what we've done, but also for our complacency and much of what we've allowed to happen in this world. And asking God for that, uh, as we say every morning, right? That, that God is going to give us a pure soul each and every day, mm-hmm. asking God for that pure soul and that pure start, that pure state in 5781 to begin anew and have that uh, immediately be followed by these elections, which whether it's true or not, every four years seems like, okay, this is a chance to be something new, to be someone new, that we can continue on this course or we can go in another direction. We're always taught that you should avoid politics from the pulpit. I'm not really sure what that means mm-hmm. because the Torah is a very political document. And that is very true. And so much of our tradition is political what to you is at stake as we continue this conversation uh, about racial justice in November's election? Hmm. Hmm. Wow, so much is at stake. Um, And I think the thing that really I just keep going back to is what you initially mentioned. It's, It's this matter of human dignity. I, as I often say in a number of uh, situations, like, I mean, I grew up in Texas and it just so happens that my best friend since the sixth grade um, is a white, cisgender, straight man who is a lapsed Episcopalian conservative. Um, so I, this is my best friend whom I love and I have um, a really strong friendship with. And one of the things that's very evident from our friendship is the way in which he really respects my humanity and respects my perspective. And even though he did not vote um, for um, President Trump, um, in this case, my main reason for bringing this up is that um, when it comes to what is at stake, it's for when when he and I talk, this isn't a partisan issue. Um, rather, this is a human to human matter. This is like a person who I love dearly as a friend and as a brother. Like that's what comes up here. So I, I know a number of people might see this as a matter of like, oh, well, I need to vote in a certain way in order to be aligned in a partisan way, or I need to vote in a certain way for the sake of um, Israel's safety or things like that. And I mean, I get that concern. But I think what's really at stake is who do we consider to be worthy of um, worthy of dignity, worthy of human dignity, and that in and of itself is really not a partisan issue. Um, my friend, who 
would more often than not vote Republican if uh, push came to shove. Um, what's animating him is this matter of like human dignity. And that's what's animating me in this moment. And so I would encourage people in as much as it's possible around, um, you know, in thinking about race, racial justice, and in thinking about all of the things that they have to juggle in this moment heading into the election, um, to really reflect on and think about that aspect of human dignity and letting that animate some of their thinking, um, because that really is not so much of a partisan issue. Um, it's a human issue, and we are all humans who are created in, you know, the Southern Elohim. So, um, yeah, that that's kind of the thing that I just keep going back to. And, and there are particulars, um, of course, um, you know, policy particulars that any number of my friends and colleagues who are much more skilled at speaking about these things and who are much more um, on the front lines of uh, activism, community organizing, and things like that. Like, yes, there are many other specifics that are at stake. But for me, it is kind of important in thinking about trying to grow into rabbinic leadership, like really communicating to people the importance of like these deeper values that actually cut across all partisan uh, partisanism. You spoke at the very beginning of our conversation about the work of Kaleidoscope and your goal to amplify the voices of Jews of color, and Jews of Sephardi and Mizrahi descents. And when truthfully, the vast majority of Jews in the world throughout Jewish history have been Jews of color. Yeah, yeah. That, that it's especially in this country where there was this influx of Eastern European Ashkenazic Jewish immigrants that we were taught that the Jewish community looks a certain way or uh, eats matzo ball soup and bagels and that's <laughs> the, the Jewish food. How do we, how do I, as a leader of the Jewish community, how do you talking to your colleagues amplify those voices of Jews of color as well to prevent this buzzword we keep coming back to, the Ashkenazi normativity of the American Jewish community. Yeah, so uh, I, I actually think back, so I'm gonna go back a little bit to first things first, like for folks who are listening to this and they might feel kind of like a ping of something happening and them, like maybe a reaction or a defensiveness or something like that, like take a moment and think about like what is happening in your body and think about what is the discomfort that's arising um, and give some space for that and honor it because it's really important to leave space for that. And then after coming through that, um, my suggestion is that simply we need to hear more stories. Um, and in hearing more stories, here is the, I think the paradigm shift that we need. Um, in fact, I'm going to put it within the example of Kaleidoscope. So at Kaleidoscope, what we, um, what we do is we bring the stories of Jews of color and Jews from Sephardic and Mizrahi backgrounds to um, broader Jewish communities, not as a means of saying, um, oh, we have been treated poorly, we are other, though there are definitely some stories that reflect on that, but rather it is to say we have stories that have value and we are part of, you know, Am Yisrael, 
So in that case, what that actually means is something quite profound, that to some extent, my story is a Jewish story and is therefore part of your story. And so in as much as I can recognize that, I need for all folks who um, might be a white Ashkenazi Jews to also realize that my story and my concerns are part of their story. So I think that moving away from this model of we're going to have an Ethiopian Jew come speak to our um, local sisterhood or something like that, and then we're going to have a discussion, and at the end of it we'll say, hmm, how interesting. It, moving from that model towards this, the Jewish Ethiopian stories are part of my Jewish history. And in order for me to do Jewish history better, in order for me to do Jewishness better, I need to realize that that is part of the tapestry of Jewish experience. Because as long as Jews have been diverse, as long as there has been a diaspora, and I think that all Jews can agree that there is a diaspora um, that has been around for um, a long time and has spanned so many countries, and Jews from everywhere look so different, like. Jews in India, in Uganda, um, in Kazakhstan, in China, in South America, like, like we have been everywhere and we look like we're from everywhere. And so making that what I think is a small leap, hopefully a small leap, but maybe not, towards realizing these stories are part of my story and therefore that requires something of me in terms of how I stand up for Jews who maybe look differently than I do or have a different tradition than I do. And so then when a synagogue or Jewish communal institution says Black Lives Matter, it's not talking about the other, it's not talking in a form of allyship, but it's saying that this is deeply acknowledging the essence of B'Tselem Elohim, that all are made in God's image. And we're talking about those within the Jewish community matter. It's Jews speaking about all humanity, but Jews speaking about Jews as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Like when you say Black Lives Matter, or, I mean, let's let's be realistic. Some people are simply just not out on the front lines, and some people are not on social media. So it's like, where exactly are they saying Black Lives Matter? But to realize, at least in acknowledging that that is meaningful, you are in essence saying, my life matters. Um, you are saying, that my future children, you know, God willing, that their lives will matter. You're saying that my friends matter. Um, for those who might be listening, who are, you know, pretty into pop culture, you're saying that the rapper Drake is life matters. <laughs> you know, you're saying that there are so, you're saying that there are so many people who happen to be black and Jewish, who happen to be people of color and Jewish. Like you're saying that our lives matter. That's really what. Um, you're saying. And believe me, there is, for those who are still like worried about the platform um, and around potential anti-Semitism there and things like that, there are plenty of folks um, inside of people like Jew of color communities who are sympathetic and understand where that concern comes from. And yet they would say that you're not free to desist, you know, <laughs> referencing back to, you know, what we talked about, you're not free to desist from caring. Um, or from like really thinking long and hard about this and in being supportive because our story is part of the Jewish story. Amen. 
I want to conclude by asking you to share, in addition to Kaleidoscope, in addition to all the work that you're doing, some of the other work that you're working on right now. Sure. So um, this has been a surprisingly busy summer, especially given the way that, uh, you know, we are deep into the pandemic, but um, I I've been busy with a number of things. So one thing I'm really happy and proud of is at JTS, we have, a, uh, we have had a racial justice reading and action and working group um, that has actually spanned generations, spanned departments, um, and also uh, multi-faith as well. So I'm really proud of the work that we have done with that and kind of some of the um, hopefully initiatives uh, and actions that will come out of that. So really excited about that. Um, also, I recently joined the board of a really great organization called Amud, the Jews of Color Torah Academy. And briefly what Amud does is it is a, uh, an academy uh, for Jewish education for Jews of color where education is provided by Jews of color. And um, far from being something, you know, some people look at that and they're like, oh, this is like, is that separatist or some or exclusionary? Um, you know, because folks might have difficulties with this notion of safe space. But one of the things that I found kind of referencing our earlier conversation is that Jews of color bring a lot of different experiences um, into their Jewish education. Like, there are any number of synagogues that I step into where the first thing I'm asked is, are you lost? Um, could you take out the trash? Or what's your story before I'm actually asked my name? So when that is your experience stepping into Jewish spaces, um, having a space where Jews of color can just study Torah and be fully affirmed in their identity um, without having to worry about some of those other questions is really meaningful. So I'm really happy to be um, on the board there and um, helping um, as a rabbinic, as a learning rabbinic presence. Um, so yeah, those are some of the things that I'm working on now and really excited about what the future holds for them. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. And I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Thanks to Kendall Pickney, a fourth year rabbinical student at the Jewish Logical Seminary for sharing his Torah with us. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at J-M-O-L-I-T-Z-K-Y. Kendall tells me he is not on social media. He's probably much <laughs> happier than the rest of us who spend way too much time throwing our phones at the wall after reading something on Twitter. <laughs> that uh, being said, I, I do have some websites if you want to check out some work. So if you go to kaleidoscopejews.org or if you go to uh, amud.org, you can find some great information on Kaleidoscope and Amud. By the way, Amud spelled with two N's. That's great. So you can check out kaleidoscopejews.org, amud.org as well. Don't forget that our November election is rapidly approaching. Each and every vote is essential. Vote early, make sure your vote is counted, and stay safe.